Welcome to an audio stream from San Marino Community Church, featuring our own pastoral staff and various guest speakers. Please be seated. You didn't have to clap for me. (laughs) Let's go to God in prayer. We thank you, God, that you have seen fit to bless us with new energies, new inspirations, new ways of seeing your world in all of these years since the beginning, our beginning, that we are always reforming that we know that there are limits to our ability to take in everything at once. And so, little by little, your kingdom becomes clearer and clearer. And we thank you for that. Illuminate our minds and hearts today, O God, that we might listen and hear and perceive your word. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Speaking of 500 years ago... August 16th, 1977, was my birthday, and um, I had been married for about a month and a half, and I was sitting with three other couples in Donnie and Marie Osmond's dressing room waiting to tape the newlywed game. And it was the original newlywed game with Bob Eubanks. And my husband was a very, he is a very shy person. So it was a shock to him when he came home one day and I said, guess what? We're going on the new, we're going to go audition for the newlywed game. So that was a big surprise to him, but um, he was a good sport and uh, we went to the newlywed game and we, we got to the audition pretty much because I was like climbing all over the ceiling and in enthusiasm and um, we had a good time. The point of that particular game, if you've never seen it, is that you answer these kind of crazy questions, uh, and you guess what your partner is going to guess, and then you know whoever gets closest without going over wins the game. And it's just meant for fun. And of course, you can't ignore those 48 boxes of rice aroni and the uh, two cases of sepulchral mouthwash, not to mention a year's worth of banquet TV dinners that you get as a part of your prize package at the very end. But of course, uh, this was all fun and games, and it was, uh, and I have a, you know, if any of you ever want to come over sometime, I I do have the DVD of it, so (laughs) anyway, we'll show it sometime in contemporary. Um, But of course, this kind of questioning was just for fun. But the kind of questioning that the Sadducees and Pharisees and Herodians had in mind with Jesus was not for fun. In fact, the Hunger Games had nothing on these guys. They had a motive for what the, the kind of questions they were going to be asking Jesus. They, and their motive was really, really life or death. So when Jesus is confronted by them, it's a life or death situation. So we come to the third of uh, the third confrontation that Jesus has with the Pharisees and Sadducees, and really the very last one, for various reasons. 
listen then, Matthew 22. And just to set the scene, he had ju- they had just asked him that question. Well, okay, so if, you're, if when a wife dies and she doesn't have any children, the brother is supposed to marry her. Well, what if there are seven brothers and none of them, she doesn't have a child, and so she marries those seven people? What happens when they go to heaven? Who's going to be the husband? You know, and so they're thinking to trap him. And, of course, you know, Jesus has this great thing to say. Because every single time they ask a question, it's because they ask it as a legalist instead of from the heart of the law every time. And they're going to lose because he points out the heart of the law. He goes, well, that's a silly question. And he comes back and he points it out. So let's listen then to this scripture. When the Pharisees heard how he had bested the Sadducees, they gathered their forces for an assault. Doesn't sound like a friendly questioning. One of their religion scholars spoke for them, posing a question they hoped would show him up. Teacher, which command in God's law is the most important? And Jesus said, without batting an eye, Lord, uh, love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and intelligence. This is the most important and it's the first on any list. But there is a second to set alongside it. Love others as well as you love yourself. Then he went further and he said, These two commands are pegs. Everything in God's law and the prophets hang from them. As the Pharisees were regrouping, thinking how they would respond, Jesus caught them off guard with something he had not done before. He asked them his own test question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, David's son. Jesus replied, well, if the Christ is David's son, how do you explain that David, under inspiration, named Christ his master? God said to my master, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is David talking in that particular scripture. Now, if David calls him master, how can he be at the same time his son? And that stumped them. Why? Literalists that they were. Unwilling to risk losing face again in one of these public verbal exchanges, they quit asking him questions for good. That's why it's the end of those confrontational. They decided not to ask him any more questions because now he's like, Are they gonna, is he going to start asking us questions? Do you ever, I wonder if you ever think about what the center of your life is, the very center of your life. And really, your life changes the center from time to time. You know, when we've, when early on, our, the center of our life are our family. And then later, the center of our life are our friends. And then when we get a little older, it's our family again, except a different extension of the family. And then it's work, and then maybe we might say church, or we might say this or that. But whatever it is, at any particular time in your life, it's a, it is a question that's important to ask. But it's only important when you consider what drives that to be the most important thing in your life, the center. What, why does that a priority in your life? What is at the center of who you are? What are you willing to save and sacrifice for? 
what is most important to you? This isn't a sermon about, well, if you answer the question this way, then you're wrong or you're bad. If you answer the question this way, it's really a question about what is the center? Sometimes it's a little hard to tell what our center is judged by what we do in life. It really is. Some people might say that it's our children that is the center of our life. And then we end up discovering a little, maybe a little too late that actually we lead separate lives from our children. That we have, we have let the days slip by with meetings and with work. That we've let downtime be hijacked by phones and computers and other things. That we've me- missed mealtimes together, not just because of our activities, but their activities. And to the point that if an outsider looked in, they wouldn't be able to really tell what the center was for anybody in the family. We may say it's our faith, but then we wonder if anyone from the outside notices anything about us in the way we live our life. That's different because we follow Christ. We might ask those questions as well. Well, there's one way to tell really what the center of your life is. And that is to pay attention, maybe, to the rules that we make for ourselves. And a lot of times, these are not just rules about uh, rules that we make that are formal rules. A lot of times, and most of the time, they're informal rules that we have for our life. Um, But we follow them regularly. For example, we're a football family, and we watch football on Thanksgiving afternoon. That's a rule. I mean, it's not a formally written rule, but it might as well be, because if anyone suggests that you do something different, you know, then you'll find out how uh, solid of a rule it is. Uh, We go to church together on Sunday mornings as a family. That might be a spoken or unspoken rule. At some point in your children's life, it's more of a spoken rule. Um, We're always home in time to read to our kids before bed. That's like, you know, could be in between. It's a choice. And we eat Sunday dinners together. So no, you're not going to go over and play with them, and you're not going to do this because we have dinner together, and you can do that later. We show our children how to serve others by what, how we serve or how we give our money or our time. Homework before playtime is another rule. Spoken or unspoken. My daughter has a very interesting rule for my granddaughters. She has two precious, beautiful little children, Liliana and Briella, and they're four and six. And her rule that she has with her friends, my daughter's friends, are that they will not put each other or anyone else down or talk about terms of being too fat or too skinny or dumb or anything that has to do with image in front of the girls. That's Sarah's rule. And she's pretty hardcore about it. So if somebody says, oh, I'm just too fat, she'll say, oh, we don't talk about that here because nobody's too fat, you know, and the girls are going, what is she too fat? You know, and and it's just a rule and people, you know, have to obey that around her. I had to correct her yesterday when we were at the pumpkin patch because she called Liliana short. And I said, wait a minute. As a short person, I take exception to that. (laughs) 
So that's her rule. But if you pay attention to the kind of rules that you have in your house, whether they're spoken or unspoken, what, it's going to be very revealing to you what your center is. Very revealing. Because by and large, the rules that we live by orient us to our center. The rules that we live by point towards what our center is, the center of our hearts, to what is most important and to, to what we make sure we want to attend to. So the same was true in Jesus' day, the very same thing. And, you know, to be honest with you, we don't know really what prompted the Pharisees to ask the kind of questions they did. Maybe the individual Pharisee was asking really because he wanted to know, but together they were colluding. But he did ask what, what the most important commandment was out of the 613 commandments in the Old Testament. That's what he was asking Jesus to do. There's only 613, Jesus, which is the most important. And we strongly suggest that it's the final time that they attempted to trap Jesus into an answer because what they wanted to do was to discredit him and to have somebody take care of him because he was a problem. Whatever the reason, what happened was it opened the door for Jesus, which is the remar- one of the remarkable things about Jesus, to show what stood at the center of his preaching and, what, and to show what stood at the center of this kingdom life that he preached about. Jesus doesn't respond with a single commandment. He responds with two. And then he adds something on, even to the third part of it. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Or as the message translation says, all your passion and prayer and intelligence. Love God with everything that you got. Everything. And he named first what was most people, and and certainly in the the audience at the time, the Jewish audience, what was the most important and central commandment. Because if you love God with everything you've got, it's just like Jesus saying, you know, follow the kingdom of God first, and everything else will fall into place behind it. And it's the same thing. Love God first and everything else will fall into. We don't have to love God literally. God is at top. Then we have to choose between God and then family comes second and then church third. And then we don't think that way. That isn't even biblical. We think God is at the center and everything bursts out of that center. Love for family, love for friends, love for the world, being, uh, having integrity at work, and all, it, it's like a starburst, more than a lineup. So we pay attention to, the, to the, what Jesus had to say, and we are oriented towards what his center is. Then he adds a second. Actually, he says the second is like the first. And that's to love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor, that is, in the same way you so desperately want to be loved. And take care of your neighbor as we all want to be cared for. The same way, he says. Then Jesus goes even further saying, everything, everything. All the laws and all the prophets, everything that the Bible says, everything that the Bible has ever said, everything that every prophet has ever said is summed up in those two commandments. 
that if you are able to follow those and, and absorb those and become those, everything else will make sense. I mean, it sounds simple, but it's, it's difficult. Why? We all we find out, so after all of Jesus' teaching and after his preaching and after all his travel and all his miracles, here, these are just a few days before his crucifixion. Remember, these stories are at the end of his life here on earth. So just a few days before his crucifixion, our Lord names his center. He names the center of his ministry. He names the center of his mission and the center of the kingdom he has been sent to proclaim and build. And what is that center? Can any of you guess? Have you been listening? Can you guess what the center is? Yeah, love is not that hard. Love is a center. You've heard this a million times, and how, how many times do we have to hear it until we remember it, until we live it, until we taste it and feel it, and we want to share it with every single person that it, we're around and that we're with? How long is it going to take us to remember that loving means also action? It means caring. It means reaching out. It means a million things. Well, at this point, the Pharisees have already decided to kill Jesus. And this clinches it. Love. We feel the tension. And we have felt it since the minute that Jesus turned towards Jerusalem. The disciples felt it. They said, they don't, we, Lord, you know what could happen when you go there. We can't go there. And Jesus wept on the hillside as he went into Jerusalem. He said, oh, if you would only know how much you're loved, if you would only know, makes me want to cry. If we would only know. But the core of this tension the core of this tension was the central teaching of Jesus itself. That was where the tension was coming. Both to his followers in 712 and to his opponents. Love is the commandment on which hangs all the law and the prophets. What? So that means love is not power. That means love is not heritage. That means love is not law. What is this love you're talking about? So it's now it's Jesus' turn to ask the Pharisees a question. And this is Jesus saying, you want to play a game with scriptures? I can play that game. It doesn't really mean anything, but we have to get on with things now. It's time to stop the game. So he asked him, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And then they became the ones that were discredited in front of the crowd. Who, who is he? Jesus reveals his superior knowledge of scripture and silences their questions and, they, and they're stumped and they walk away and they don't question him anymore. And this was important for Matthew to do this. Why was it important for Matthew to do this in scripture? Well, what Matthew needed to do was establish Jesus' credentials 
as the divinely authorized teacher for, for Matthew to be able to say to his audience, Jesus was superior and in his knowledge of scripture, he knew what it was all about. More the, not the letter of the law, he even knew further than that. He knew the cutting edge of it where you go underneath it and there's the real heart of it pulsing and it has life and it's not a dead, on a dead scroll and it's love. Because in a few days, Jesus would be on trial. And if you remember, when Jesus is on trial, he goes through that entire trial primarily silent. He's already said what he needed to say, and he said it a million different ways. And he said it in what he did, and he said it in what he says, and he says it in the silence now as they ask him and continue this game. In the end, though, honestly, it's really our hearts, I think, that bring us to know what Jesus knows. We know that he's the humble king who has arrived in the city of David. And we, we know that he's the son of David with a small s, and he's the son of David with a capital S. And they don't get it. And he's come to help us understand that the core of what God expects of us is to love God with our whole selves and to love each other as God loves us. We can't do one without the other. They're, they're a package deal. God's law finally and forever is the law of love. It's that simple and it's that difficult because loving others, you know, means putting them first. It just does. And it's easy for us to do that with people that we genuinely care about with children and our spouse and our dear friends. We, we can put them first, but what about the stranger? What about our enemy? And those are the challenge because Jesus says there's a new way. It's not new in the way you're wired, but it's new in the way we have behaved as a society that says we can't be friends with our enemy because they'll club us over the head and take our brontosaurus bone. Now, I know that makes no sense. They didn't live at the same time. But they could have dug up a fossil. I don't know. So, but what, we saying, what we're saying is that Jesus is constantly saying there's the new law that breathes and is organic more than reading and being uh, as, as in quicksand and in cement as much as the words on the page are. He's come to help us understand that the law is the law of love and it's not easy and it's not, sometimes it's not, seems not possible because loving others means putting them first. It means sacrificing sometimes. It means being vulnerable to the needs of others. It means they take our time and our energy and sometimes our finances. And all of this can be kind of scary to give ourselves away, which is the main reason that Jesus didn't just come teaching and preaching God's love, but he embodied it. He didn't just come and say, okay, here's what you all need to do, but he actually embodied it. He lived it. So just a few days after this encounter, Jesus will gather with his disciples. He'll take some bread and wine. 
and he'll invite them by eating and drinking to share his life. For us to become food for the world, just like he was food for the world. And every time we come together and eat and drink, we become food for the world as well. And after that meal, he'll go from that place of safety. He'll leave that place and embrace his future, which is going to the cross. And he doesn't go to the cross to make God loving. He goes to the cross to show that God is loving. And that God loves us because ultimately the way we love each other is to first recognize that God first loved us. And that's why a faithful sermon about the law will always point towards Jesus every single time. Because you see, it's interesting, the rule of of God, this rule that God follows, that God instituted for God's self, is that we would be saved, that we would be embraced and held close, and that eternity would mean communion with God. So in a way, God's rule that God has for God's self orients God towards us. We are the center of God. God has made it so, that love that God has for us, that love and attention, that grace and mercy. So God orients God's self towards us and reveals God's self through Jesus Christ and all that Christ would have us do. So the Hunger Games had nothing on Jesus. He could have taken them down with questions. He could have done so many things differently. But what he did was open the door and give us a chance. Amen? Friends, we are going to leave this place and go out to the courtyard. We're going to sing Amazing Grace with bagpipers that are waiting out there for us. And they have the most wonderful kilts on and the drums are going to be beating. And we are going to celebrate that we are a church that's reformed and always reforming. And may God bless each of us with an open heart and an open mind to see that the center and heart of God is love. Let's stand together. And let's leave this place with great joy.